Again, Matthew chapter 10. We are actually going to be finishing up Matthew chapter 10. I know, it seems so fast. Which reminds me, we've been in it for four weeks, and I would offer you $5 if you can do the different, the four weeks of this, which you can't do tonight, so we'll do the last three. I don't actually have $5, so Sal will give you $5. I'm very quick to offer other people's money. Uh, The very first week we were in Matthew, we talked about the Levi. The why of the mission, that's correct. The why of the mission. Yes, the why of the mission. Why do we go out and live on mission? The answer is quite simply, people need the Lord. Uh, The very first week in Matthew 10, Jesus is addressing the disciples, but he's also addressing you and I and every follower of him, those who have made Jesus the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their lives. Uh, Anyone who has called on the name of the Lord and and ask for forgiveness and turn their life over to Him, uh, that is what we call a believer. That is somebody who uh, has a personal relationship with Jesus. And He has called us to a very specific thing because He knows that people need Him. Um, The second week, we talked about the... Yes, well done, Courtney. Levi, you got to be quicker, man. The urgency of the mission, and that is where Jesus is telling disciples, don't bother packing, don't bring an extra coat, don't pack your money, go. There is an urgency to the mission, and uh, the hard part of that is that section ends up talking about the coming judgment. And then last week, we talked about the... Courtney, you were one away from five dollars. Levi took it from you. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's. <laughs> Sal just took a huge breath of relief. Now he can have enough gas money to get home tonight. There's a podcast, Courtney, no excuses. Yeah. The cost of the mission, that there is a cost to living on mission, and it would be so awesome if I could come up here and say, man, if you live your life for Christ, you will never encounter any problems again. Wow, the, the rate we would have people coming to know Christ would be massive. But the truth is there is a cost to living on mission. There is a cost to being obedient to Christ. And last week and this week go very much hand in hand, but tonight we're going to be talking about the sacrifice of the mission. The sacrifice of the mission. It's an unknown who originally said it, but it's been said many times Missions is not the ministry of choice for a few hyperactive Christians in the church. Missions is the purpose of the church. So this isn't what we think of as missionaries, as these are the select few, these are the special forces of Christianity that now go out and tell other people about Jesus. The truth of it is every single one of us that would call ourselves a a believer, and we talked about this several weeks ago, call ourselves that we know Jesus, that he is the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, and we follow after him, and we tell other people that we know him. This is your calling. 
And then we come together as believers and we make up what we called the local church. Local churches come and go. A lot of the churches that we see addressed in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus, so to speak, it does not exist. The city does not exist. So local churches come and go, but all local churches are made up in the universal church. Uh, the universal church is when uh, Jesus said that my church cannot be stopped. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the church that he was talking about. And the universal church works with each other to fulfill and build the kingdom of God. And so that was our purpose in life as an individual believer, was to be part of a local church, part of the universal church, to build the kingdom of God. And so mission, living on mission, is the purpose of the church. It is the mission for the individual believer. In John 20, 21, the last part of that verse, Jesus again is addressing his disciples, and he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And again, this is for all believers. This is for anyone who's called on the name of Christ. This is for you. So I'm sure you're wondering, how was Jesus sent? I'm glad you asked. As the Father has sent me, and we go to Philippians chapter 2, don't turn there, this is going to be a big part of your discussion in community groups this week, we see what's called the mind of Christ. We see that, that Jesus was in the throne room of heaven, that he was the commanding officer, if you will, over all of the angels, that Jesus, uh, there is not a better place that we can't even fathom or imagine to be than where Jesus was. Colossians tells that all things were created by him and for him and through him. Jesus was what we cannot comprehend. And how did his father send him? To earth. To interact with a people that always disobeyed him. And harbors anger and bitterness and resentment towards him. And he came to earth not as a powerful political figure, not as a commanding general of a military force, but he came to earth as a helpless baby born to an unmarried mother in a stable. He came to earth in complete humility, and he loved the people that he came to earth for, to the point of the ultimate humiliation and sacrifice of death on a cross. And so when we see that that was how Jesus was sent to earth, and he says, as my Father has sent me, so I now am sending you. We should understand that there was an extreme cost. Jesus came to earth knowing the extreme cost that was going to take place, that he came to earth knowing that he would be rejected by most overall. Uh, narrow is the path, or narrow is the gate that leads to eternity in heaven, but wide is the path that leads to destruction. He knew that he was going to be rejected by most, and while he was on earth, he would be rejected by all, even his closest friends ran and hid while he was crucified. So he knew that it was at an extreme cost, and he says, as my Father sent me, so I am sending you. Now, this is not, when we think about living on mission, this is not a percentage game, right? Like in business, we're going to continue to go after, I say we like I'm a businessman, we're not going to continue to go after uh, where we do the best, the best product. We're not doing that. We already know you're going to be rejected by most, and it will come at an extreme cost. 
So it's not a percentage game. Instead, it's all about obedience. When we live on mission, it's not because that's what's best for us. It's because that's what we've been told to do. J.D. Greer said that in the Bible, we find no gap between the call to follow Jesus and the call to engage in mission. Hudson Taylor, who we'll talk about more at the end of the message, in the 1800s, he said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. So knowing Christ and living on mission which is representing Christ and telling other people about Christ, wherever you live, learn, work, and play, these are not separate things. They are one and the same. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1 and 2, a passage we read through regularly, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, when we stop and take a look at all that God has done, is doing, and promises that he will continue to do in your life, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means everything about you, everything that makes you up, your identity, your resources, all the things that we spent the first couple months of this year talking about, all of those things are to be offered as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And again, in our English, that would say it's just common sense that when we actually comprehend all that God has done, is doing, and will do for us, it is common sense that everything that makes us us is offered back to him as a sacrifice every day of our lives. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Again, we talk about that conforming is what happens from the outside in, that the outside, the things that surround me on the outside will slowly conform me into their image. And he says, but rather be transformed. That is what happens on the inside. That is a work that only Christ can do through the Holy Spirit, that he's transforming us by the renewing of our mind, by continually chasing after and pursuing holiness and Christ-likeness that will then shape us to affect the outside. That's the difference between conforming and being transformed. Then it says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. A lot of times we say, if only God would tell me what his will is, then I would do it. What the passage says is, no, you do it. He's been very clear in what he's told you to do, to obey, to step out on faith. And as you do that, then all of these other things will fall into place. And these passages are what leads us to the phrase that we say quite regularly at Hope Church, the gospel is always about sacrifice and humility, not comfort and privilege. The gospel is always about sacrifice and humility. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ defeated sin and death, when we live out the gospel, when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, it's about becoming Christ-like who is Uh, able to go through the sacrifice that we will never understand and endured a humility that we will never understand because that's what was best for you and I. All of his followers, his disciples, they wanted a seat of privilege. They wanted the easy life. They believed that he would be the Messiah, but what they envisioned as the Messiah and what he actually came to were two very different things. They saw a life of luxury and that they hitched their wagon to the right car, that they hitched their cart to the right horse, and now they were going to have a seat of power. When in reality, he came with an extreme sacrifice 
an extreme humility, and they ran and they hid. Another minister from the 1800s, John Jowett, said, there is a, he said, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. So there is a cost to the mission. There is a sacrifice of the mission. There is a cost to following Christ. All of that brings us to our passage in Matthew chapter 10. So if you would, Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. Jesus continues. He says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will become the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So I want to break up, and again, we have said all the way through Matthew 10 that a lot of these things we're seeing are very cultural. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we kind of have to walk through because they wouldn't uh, make sense to us today. The first week he says, do not go to the Gentiles and do not go to a Samaritan village. Well, that doesn't make sense for what we do. We are predominantly, as far as I know, almost all Gentiles. So that doesn't make sense. So we have to look at the context of this, the culture of this, the historical time and place that this took place at to properly understand uh, this passage. And so uh, in verses 34 through 39, he is saying things that don't sound right. Because we call Jesus the Prince of Peace, but here he says, I did not come... Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Well, we sing about that at Christmas time. That's why he came. But again, he's going back to there is a cost to following Christ. There is true peace, but true peace comes from knowing and obeying Christ. That we can have peace with our Creator God because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We can. Uh, we can experience peace even in the midst of incredible turmoil and war. We have the Prince of Peace in our lives. And the goal, of course, and the end is the kingdom of God is peace. So true peace comes from knowing and obeying Christ, whereas when we try to just constantly make peace with the world around us, usually what ends up happening is what we talked about last week. All of a sudden, we're more worried about what people think of us, and we just want everybody to be happy that we abandon the mission of God. We abandon what we've been called and, and should be doing in obedience because we are so concerned about what people think of us. But when we live for Christ, the truth is that there will be people that dislike us. Now, in this particular passage, the, the harder question is, are you willing to sacrifice familial relationships for the cause of Christ, 
right? I can see the parents in here when it says, I will turn a father, a man against his father. Like, well, okay, that's too much. And I will turn a, a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. We're like, well, we kind of get that. that. That makes sense. But I, to understand this properly in the context, the reason that Jesus jumps right to this family relationship is back then, family was everything. Um, and, and we might say that today, that family is everything. If you know me, you know I'm in the middle of seven kids, that I love my siblings, I love my parents, I have a great relationship with all of them, that we take care of each other. But I also moved out at a really young age, not for anything bad, just I was very independent. And I remember at 12 years old, I was working on a farm, and I was like, finally, I can just take care of myself. I'm making money. I don't have to rely on these people anymore. Nothing bad. It was just, that's who I was. So at 17, I was on my own, and I was okay. Got along with everybody great in my family. Now, as the middle of seven kids, I could have gone to prison for two years. My parents probably would not have noticed, and I would have just shown up back at the house. But we loved each other. We cared for each other. But it wasn't anything for me to just move around to go different places. And I know some of you are very similar. Some of you have had to go through losing family members um, for different reasons. But at this time, your family was everything. Most of the time, the job that you would have was because you were an apprentice under your father, and you learned from him, and his name and his reputation was going to stick on you. Uh, a lot of times, uh, what we have now is life insurance. Back then, that was your family. Our health insurance that was your family. Uh, they didn't have the medical stuff back then that we do today. That shouldn't surprise any of you. But if you broke your leg and you were crippled the rest of your life, it was up to your family to take care of you. There was no insurance check coming. Uh, there was no getting it fixed coming. So your family was everything. That was your fallback. That's who you lived with. Uh, usually when you were married, you lived on your father's property in some way until you took over the family business or the house. So we don't properly, no matter how close you think you are with your family, properly understand what this was like at this time. So when Jesus says, I've come to turn a man against his father, under Roman law, you could have one of your children executed at any time. It was up to you. The father was in charge. Uh, and the Jewish law was very similar. Uh, we read in the Old Testament, the Levitical law, that if a child was just continually being rebellious... You could take them out, and the townspeople would come out, and they would stone them. Not the marijuana kind, but the kind with rocks. And they would kill them. That was perfectly legal under Levitical law. So there was a lot at stake here. So when Jesus is saying, I don't assume that I've come to bring peace, I'm going to turn a, father against his, or a son against his father, that carried a lot of weight with it, as did the rest of these family relationships. Why? Well, there is a cost to following Christ. And again, we don't understand it, but this has gone on throughout history. Our partners with Empower One, or uh, just talk to the different people. There are people in this room who have seen this firsthand of people uh, who come to know the Lord and their parents have them killed. People that come to know their Lord and their children turn them in and have them killed. This still happens every day in our world. There is a cost to following Christ. The hard question is, and I kind of mentioned this last week, are you willing to not only die for Jesus? Because a lot of times we'll say, oh, if I was given that choice of, you know, either your life or, or renounce Christ, I would definitely, you know, I would never renounce Christ. I don't believe anybody in this room has ever been put in that position. 
And I've heard people say a lot of things that they would do if this happened to them and then watched it happen. They do not act that way that they thought they would. The question isn't are you willing to die for Jesus in our context, in our culture, but are you willing to live for him? Are you willing to be that living sacrifice for him? The second part of this passage, verses 40 to 42 and I'll just read it again. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of those li- these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Here's what I found in studying this passage. There are more theories about those verses than you could have possibly imagined. And as I was reading through them and really went down quite a rabbit hole on these different verses and exactly what that means and how to apply it to our context, it was fascinating. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do the common theme throughout, and that is care for the ministers of the gospel. Care for those that are ministers of the gospel, but also remember All of us who call Christ our Savior are ministers of the gospel. Now, it's different callings, and so he says as a prophet, a prophet is somebody that would uh, tell God's truth, that would uh, speak, uh, take care of a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. A righteous person is somebody who follows after Christ and lives a life uh, trying to be Christ-like and pursues holiness, take care of them. And then when it comes to even these little ones, They don't know if they're talking about children or people that were young in the faith, immature believers, people that have recently uh, started following Christ. And and more than likely in this context, the context is uh, specifically for people that are enduring persecution, that we take care of those. And so even if somebody who didn't claim to know God and somebody came to their door uh, who was being chased who was a minister, uh, a prophet, somebody who everyone knew was a believer, or even somebody that was spiritually mature whose life was threatened, and they took them in, it's demonstrating a faith in God to believe that they should take care of them even though it might come at the expense of their life as well. And so, simply put, these verses, again, just kind of find the the, uh, the common theme throughout is Take care of the ministers of the gospel. Take care of each other. Take care of the people that are doing God's work. But I really want to focus on the verses 34 through 39 this evening. That there is a cost to following Christ, that there is a sacrifice to be made when we follow Christ. I want you to look at verse 38. So if whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, there is a lot in that verse, those two verses. In fact, it's so much, that's what we're going to be talking about the next two weeks. But I want, again, to go back to the culture at this point. The culture at this point, they just didn't mention the word cross. Uh, They didn't talk about it. They definitely didn't wear it as a jewelry piece. The cross was so shameful The cross was nothing that you wanted to be associated with. Uh, In today's world, if you had a sibling who was found, one, you couldn't be a Roman citizen and be crucified, but usually it was the worst of the worst people. 
Uh, it was the people who were leading rebellions against the Roman government. It was people who were fighting the Roman government. It was the worst thieves. It was the worst of the worst. Those were the people that were crucified, and they were crucified outside the city walls, usually on main roads that were coming into the city, and it was always done as a warning to people that the Romans were in charge, and if you got out of line, this is what happens. But to the family of somebody that was crucified, it was a dishonor to your entire family. And so in today's world, if you would have had a sibling that would be crucified, the first thing you would do is get rid of every picture, get rid of anything that associates you with a person that was crucified. It was incredibly shameful. It was uh, such a massive disgrace. And again, in our culture, we just can't comprehend that. And Jesus is saying, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. And anyone that doesn't isn't worthy. I can't imagine what was going through the disciples who were picturing this person as the Messiah, the ruler, the, the chief, who's saying, this is what you must do. I can almost see him looking at each other like, I think he slipped up. I don't think that was a word that was supposed to come out of his mouth there. You didn't talk about it. You didn't mention it. It was not a joke. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So how do we do this? How do we take seriously what it is to live on mission? What are we willing to not give up in our lives? That's the question that I want you to ask yourselves tonight. What are you willing to not give up? C.H. Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And again, if it's one thing that I want to really be clear tonight, these are not separate items. So I want to walk through a, a, a brief list, definitely not an exhaustive list of any kinds of, here are some things that we may, myself very much included, we may have to sacrifice in order to live on mission. And before we jump into these, I just want to give a couple stats that I've learned recently. Um, when we were first coming to, planning on coming down here to start a church plan in 2014, uh, there was a list that comes out every year of the 100 most biblically minded cities. Um, and it was just places that through surveys and different study groups or whatever, uh, these are places that were high on the list. If most people you talk to have some knowledge of the Bible, and the other list was like the worst. Like these people don't know anything about the Bible. And I can't remember because I'm not good with numbers. Charleston, South Carolina was somewhere around like 73, 78 of like uh, most minded biblically. And then just over a matter of three or four years, I think they dropped 40-some places in that list, and I haven't looked at it in the last couple of years. So it just was a growing population. It was a growing population of what was once called the holy city, and by my understanding, that was actually a mocking term. Uh, you would come into the, the sailors would come into the harbor and see nothing but steeples, but when they would come into what was harbor at the time, it was nothing but taverns and brothels. So they called it the holy city almost as a joke. Uh, but there, Charleston was actually founded, I'm doing some quick history here, uh, as a religious free city. 
Um, so freedom of religion. And we think of that as the entire United States, but it was the um, Protestants that went to New England. It was the Quakers that went to uh, Pennsylvania. And it was, as you go through these different cities, they were founded by specific uh, denominations, specific, specific groups. But in Charleston, it was everybody. So a lot of these different belief systems have their first one in the United States was here in Charleston. And so that's why you have so many churches and so many steeples. And even when I first, I didn't, Tab and I didn't know where we wanted to go to plant a church. And so we prayed about it. I wasn't actually going to get into this, but it fits in, I promise. So we looked at different cities, and we prayed, and we'd look at another city. And finally, I just asked four different people, four different guys that I highly admire. None of them knew each other. Can you just pray and ask God where we should go, and you just tell us, and we'll go. Both of us, we've moved around so many times. My wife was a missionary kid whose parents have been in two different countries outside of the United States. So we just, we didn't mind moving. Just tell us where. And in one week, all four guys got back to me and thought, have you thought about Charleston, South Carolina? And the first one that told me that, I kind of laughed, and I was like, oh, definitely not. Because in my mind, Charleston was just this southern city with a lot of churches. And everybody must know the Lord, so why go there? Which is weird, because I was living in Lynchburg at the time, which was number two on the list. And so I just thought that was kind of funny that that's what he mentioned. And over the course of that week... These four men, none of them knowing each other, all said, what about Charleston? By the fourth one, we were like, okay, I guess we're going to Charleston. So we came down here, and we couldn't believe the amount of people that were moving here. And this was a stat I heard this last week. I haven't fact-checked it, so don't blame me if it's wrong. Somerville, South Carolina, there are now parts of Ravenel that are considered Somerville. Uh, There's parts of Monk's Corner considered Somerville. Somerville, even though it's actually North Charleston, when you come up from Ashley Phosphate, people kind of consider that Somerville. It goes all the way up to like Harleyville, Ridgeville. So we have a massive, massive area in Somerville, South Carolina, where if you live in Somerville, that's where God's called you to be on mission, by the way. In the last 40% of the population of that area has moved here in the last three years. It sounds off, I know. So there is a massive amount of people that are moving here. Uh, Every year, Somerville, South Carolina, becomes more lost than it was the previous year, meaning there are more people that don't know the Lord than the year before. And so if you believe in Christ, you are to be on mission here in a city that is quickly becoming more and more lost. So I want you to stop and pause and ask yourself, are you taking that seriously? Are you taking that seriously when you think about the surroundings that you have? And I know not everybody lives in Somerville, but fit this in where you live. So now let's ask ourselves the question, what are we going to have to sacrifice? What What may we have to sacrifice in order to reach the people that God has put us in contact with where we live, learn, work, and play. You're going to be discussing these in your community groups as well. So we may have to sacrifice, number one, personal ambitions. You see, we all have goals we want to accomplish. We have to ask ask the question, do they match up with what God wants? And again, going back in history, Tab and I, when we moved down here uh, with our church plant team, my mindset was, that you are a successful church when you hit a thousand people and you get asked to come speak at a conference. So how do we build a church and get it to a thousand people as quickly as we can? And how do I get invited to be a conference speaker? Because that is how you know you've made it as a church. 
That's not true. It's not written down anywhere. That was just what was in my head. So we came down here with those ideas, and I sat, and you, maybe you've heard the story, uh, at the Cypress Project with Neil McGlone, and he said, how many of you came down here with years of planning, you got it all figured out, not his words, but what I was hearing, and you hope God came along for the ride? Like, you made all your plans, and all we need now is just God to understand that our plans are good, and he comes with us. Or have you stopped and asked God, what are you doing And how do I partner with you in your mission? So my personal ambitions were completely different because that was me. And when Neil asked that question, I felt like I had been punched in the stomach because I had never done that. Years of planning a church plant, just imagining that because I was doing something good like a church, God was just going to come along and bless it. So we stopped, we hit the brakes, and we spent a year, year and a half before we actually started. We meet on Saturday nights, we love it. People, I've been asked by pastors, well, Saturday nights, your church isn't going to grow. Yeah, but when I look out here and I see all of you, this is who God called us to reach. So we did it. And if nobody comes next week and we shut our doors and that's it, I sincerely believe we did what God called us to do at that time. So what about you personally? Are you making plans and hoping God comes along for the ride? Are you making plans and they're even well-intended plans and you're just hoping God comes along for the ride? Or have you stopped and asked God, God, what are you doing today and how do I partner with you in fulfilling your mission for me today? So we may have to sacrifice personal ambitions. Number two, we may have to sacrifice ease and comfort. Going back to what we said earlier, uh, again, something we say all the time, the gospel is always about sacrifice and humility, not comfort and privilege. Another thing that I say constantly, God's vision is always at war with the American dream. What God wants and what we're told we deserve as Americans, they are constantly battling each other in our lives. We should be safe and happy. God says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to divide. Not because that's what my intent was, but just when you follow after me, people will hate you. Why? Because they hated me. And I was perfect. And you are not. God's vision is always at war with the American dream. So what are you chasing after? Is your main intent to have an easy life? Is it to have a comfortable life? And then when it fits in, we'll do the Christian stuff when it's convenient. But right now, first I have to have that house, or first I have to have that car, or first I have to have X amount of money in the bank account, or first, there's just a lot of firsts, and we go back to what we talked about uh, when we talked about the urgency of the mission, and he says, don't pack, don't bring money, just go. We are to live on mission, just go. Don't seek after ease and comfort. Number three, we may have to sacrifice our career. That doesn't mean you have to quit your job. Maybe. Maybe it does for you. But how do you use your career or your job as a mission field? How do you use that knowing that God has uniquely designed you, that God in His sovereignty has placed you exactly where you are because there is somebody there that God wants you to interact with, that God wants them to see somebody who lives the love of Christ within their life? 
that God wants them to see the forgiveness that's taken place. God wants them to see the grace and mercy in your life because that in some way is going to affect somebody else. So do you approach your job or your career as I'm going to my mission field? Trust me, this was extremely convicting to me at one point and it completely changed how I viewed my job. I was bitter and angry and complained all the time. And again, one of those very convicting moments, not this job, by the way, different job, I had to realize that that job God had put me in there to represent him and I was doing anything but. And so where God has placed you, how do you view that as your mission field? And if you are a, a person that stays home with your kids, man or woman, know that that is one of the most important mission fields that you could ever, ever have. So how are you using that as your mission field? Next, we may have to sacrifice dreams. You have to sacrifice your dreams. Are your dreams all about making you or God great? Let me say this again. At all times, you're either trying to make God look awesome or yourself look awesome, and you can't do both at the same time. So what is your dream? Is your dream to make God awesome or is it to make you look awesome? And lastly, we may have to sacrifice our will. I think it says your will. I should drop the Y on that. That's my fault. We may have to sacrifice our will because we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but do we actually mean that? Again, when we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning help us to obey as the angels obey your command in heaven. Help us to obey that way here on earth. And going back up to, then you will know what God's perfect will is in Romans 12 too. And then we look and say, oh, if I just knew what God wants me to do. And it's throughout the whole Bible what he wants you to do. Live on mission, represent him, point other people to him. Even when you mess up, you are demonstrating the gospel. Even when you have messed up with that coworker and you have to go back and ask for forgiveness because you misrepresented God, you are explaining to them the gospel is so beautiful because in it there is forgiveness and grace and mercy. So do we actually pray your will be done or does it sound more like God help me accomplish my will or else I'm going to quit going to church or else... I won't believe in you anymore. Do we highly prioritize our will or God's will in our life? William Barclay said, there is no place for a policy of safety first in the Christian life. Those who seek first ease and comfort and security and the fulfillment of personal ambition may well get these things, but they will not be happy. For we were sent into this world to serve God and one another. Now, on the positive side, at the end of John, or I'm sorry, John 10, Jesus is talking to his, I'm sorry, Jesus is um, talking, is explaining what it is to follow him. And at the end of verse 10, he says, I have come that they, you and I, may have life and have it to the full. Jesus didn't come to rob your joy. Jesus didn't come to rob my joy, to take away all the fun stuff. 
Jesus knew what true joy is. He knew how and why he created us the way he did, and he knew what it is to know him and to know actual joy. There are so many stories of people who have died for the cause of Christ, and in it, it is amazing. And we've talked about what it is when, uh, a couple weeks ago, and he says, don't worry about what to say. The Spirit will give it to you at that time. And again, it's another one of those, you just go and do I will give you the Spirit to guide you. And we think, no, show me an assurance first, then I'll go. That's not faith. So many stories of people dying, being burned at the stake, going through horrificness. And I can't remember, Will, you can remind me, but the, there was, maybe it was Justin Martyr. But he, as he was being burned at the stake, he was smiling, and people smelled a beautiful aroma which is not normally what happens when a human being is being burned alive. He was offered as a sweet aroma before God. Why? Because Jesus offers life to the fullest, that even in the most difficult circumstances, we can have joy. In this life, you will endure hard things, but you can always have the joy of Christ in your life. Jesus offers life to the fullest when we follow him. I want to go back to Hudson Taylor. Uh, Hudson Taylor was a missionary. Um, he came to know the Lord in 1849. He was 16 years old. And at the time, he was actually he was brought up in a church and gave up on church, didn't like his parents, was angry and bitter, didn't believe anything. And all he did was had a pamphlet. It was a pamphlet called Poor Richard, and in it explained the gospel, and he accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And within a couple months, he knew that God was calling him to be a missionary in China. And in the mid-1800s, that was a very, very dangerous voyage, but there was a lot of money to be made in trading with China. And one of the things Hudson Taylor said is he looked around and he saw all these people traveling to China to, to make money, but when he wanted to go as a missionary, they said it's too dangerous. And he said, isn't that sad when we will be willingly risk our lives to make money, but we won't for the gospel after all Jesus has done for us. So that's what he did. He went to China. In fact, he lived to be 73 years old, and he spent 57 of his years in China. And he went against, completely against the culture at the time. Uh, missionaries, you would go in, and it wasn't just to tell people about the gospel. It was to make sure they were wearing the right clothes, doing their hair the right way, uh, that you would westernize wherever you went. Then they could know Christ. Hudson Taylor went and realized, I'm not reaching anybody, and so he shaved the top of his head back, put his hair in a ponytail, and started wearing the clothes that they wore in China at the time. And all of a sudden, people started hearing his message. Why? Because he was willing to humble himself. He was willing to make that sacrifice. In fact, it would become, as he would go back to England to recruit more missionaries and bring them back, as they were traveling, he'd say, by the way, here's how you're going to cut your hair, and here's what you're going to wear. And especially for women to wear the Chinese, what we would consider pajamas, that was scandalous. But he kept going back to 1 Corinthians and saying, I uh, will do whatever it takes, basically, to win some. To the Jew, I will become a Jew. To the Greek, I will become a Greek. I will be all things to all people in order to win some. Hudson Taylor was responsible for 800 missionaries going to China. 
He started 125 schools in every province. Nobody would go inland in China, and he went in every province. Hudson Taylor lost children. Um, his first wife died when um, he lost a baby, a newborn baby, at two weeks from malnourishment because his wife had cholera that would take her life two weeks later after the baby. He was passionate about the people of China. He was married a second time. He ended up losing that wife. He lost most of his children. In fact, he was so old that they didn't really want him to go back to China at the end of his life, but he did anyways, and that is where he ended up dying. But at the end of his life, after all that he lost, somebody asked him if it was worth it, and he responded, I have had a if I had a thousand pounds, he was from England, that's their dollars, if I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? So if you're wondering where you've been called to, just know it's exactly where you live, learn, work, and play. Do you interact in those places in the same way that you've been called to? Going back to the end of Matthew 9, we said Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion. He saw sheep without a shepherd. He saw the oppressed. He saw the hurting. Is that how you see your communities? Is that how you see your coworkers, your schoolmates, wherever it is? Is that how you see the world around you? Uh, as I meet with different pastors and different people and some churches that we've tried to come alongside of and, and help, one of the, there's a saying, it's not from me, it's been around for a long time. But you start by saying, your church is designed to reach the people that it is currently reaching. Who are you currently reaching? And that will tell you where your church is. But the same is true for our personal lives. As we look back over the last week, as we look back over the last month of your life, ask yourself the question, if, if you have now designed your life, <clears throat> usually unknowingly, to reach the people around you, how have you done in the last week, the last month? How is your life so designed to reach the people that it is currently reaching? Because as you talk to a church, you start to realize that your church isn't reaching the people that you want to reach because your methodology is all wrong, or it's just not fit for this culture. It's not fit for, and there's always a bunch of reasons that you go into as you discuss this. But the same is true for our personal lives. If you are currently not having any gospel conversations, if you are currently not uh, talking to people about the Jesus that you know and love, we have to ask ourselves personally, you have now set your life up, either you're too busy or, or it really comes down to, I just don't love Jesus enough. I don't spend enough time in his word, I don't spend enough time praying for the people that God has placed in my life. So we have to go back and check the methodology, check the philosophy. And start to ask ourselves the question, what needs to change in order that I can reach the people that God has sovereignly placed in my life? So that's the question I leave you with. What needs to change? We've been talking about this since the beginning of the year, our time, our resources, our abilities and experiences. We know we've been called to go out on mission, but the question is now up to you. What needs to change? What needs to change so that we can continue 
to obey and live on mission. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to know you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this evening who has never made you the forgiver of their sins and leader of their life, that tonight they would call out to you. That they would call out knowing that you died so that we didn't have to. They would seek and ask for your forgiveness. That they might enter that relationship with you. But Lord, I also pray for those that do know you. Lord, you have given us a calling. You have asked us to obey you. And as the Father sent you out, so you have sent us out. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts for our community around us. Lord, I pray that it is, wherever it is that we live, learn, work, and play, that we would see people as you see them. That we would understand that in your sovereignty, that you have placed us there to represent you. No, we may never see them come to know you, but we know that you make them no mistakes. We know we have the awesome responsibility and opportunity to point people to the Jesus that we love. Lord, I pray that you would guide us to do that for your glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.